Hi everybody and welcome to the latest episode of the FFS Show, our podcast about misinformation and fat checking. I am your host returning after a month-long break uh, and with me is the person who was sat in my steed for that time, Sam Gonsalves. How are you doing? Welcome back, welcome back. The the crown lies heavy on my head. I'm so thankful to to take it off today and pass it back to you. How have you been? How I'm I'm sure that you spent a lot of time reading up on misinformation and and podcasting in your time off. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a basically it was a basically a way a sort of two week podcasting course. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Practicing intros, practicing uh, easy banter. Yeah, uh, so I can think you think you can read that's all paid off. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's nice to have you back. What have we got coming up on this edition of the podcast? So this edition, we are looking at our claim that the EU outlawed imperial weights and measures in the UK. So we're going to be discussing that fact check. And we have an interview. Honestly, I think all the guests that we get are so interesting. But this yeah. one is like has lots of connections with the ferry. And I thought it was a really interesting conversation. Um, do you want to tell the listener more about who that is? We've got Owen McGuire, who's the lead editor at Bellingcat. For people who don't know about Bellingcat, they're an excellent online investigator collective. They use uh, open source and openly accessible information to track and research loads of stuff, particularly recently around the Ukraine conflict. Absolutely. And it's uh, in this conversation, he takes us through the kind of behind the scenes of putting some of these investigations and some of the yeah. pieces together. And it's really fascinating. Like He literally just kind of goes through a map and talks about the different experts that had to come into recreating the scene and, and, and getting verification yeah. for the information they had. It's it's genuinely like really brilliant. So worth worth a listen. Okay, so should we get into that after we've talked about our fact check? Let's do it. So Imperial Weights and Measures. Uh, mm. This was a very interesting fact check from last week. Uh, can you give me some background on what claim you were checking here, Ali? Yeah, so anybody who's been uh, looking at the news over the last uh, couple of weeks will have seen that the UK government launched a consultation on bringing back imperial weights and measures to the UK. So uh, for those who are, I don't know, maybe under 30, who (laughs) don't have a huge experience of uh, imperial weights and measures in the UK, um, that's basically bringing back and giving people the option to sell products using imperial weights so things like pounds and ounces rather than metric weights so kilograms grams the imperial weights and measures conversation is something that's been going on obviously in the uk for decades and has been a real bone of contention around the jubilee the queen's jubilee weekend the uk government announced that they were going to have a consultation on bringing back imperial weights and measures and sort of reintegrating them into british life but the claim specifically we were looking at was from an organization called the bruges group which is an organization okay. that campaigns against the EU. And they suggested that imperial measurements have been part of Britain's social fabric for generations. Their use should never have been outlawed at the behest of foreign bureaucrats. Okay, so right now we have a mix, right? I've certainly seen like I've certainly seen both um, units on different things. Like there's a bit of a mix of how we measure things. Is that right? Yeah, so most products uh, in terms of things that are sold... That food products, things that are sold by weight, are primarily sold in metric measurements. So that's you know kilograms, grams, milliliters, liters, that sort yeah. of things. That's usually packaged or loose goods. They're sold that in that way. 
but the UK also, there's certain items which are sold in pints. So milk bottles, right. returnable milk bottles, and beer. Uh, that's sure. obviously the two notable ones which are sold in pints. And on street signs, for example, you will see things in miles rather than in kilometers. Yeah, yeah. So is our shift into this hybrid model um, a consequence of EU pressure or EU policy? Yes and no. When the, when the UK joined the European Economic Community, which is the precursor to the EU, the EU was already using and promoting uh, what's known as the International System of Units, which is basically the modern form of the metric system, and had rules which uh, meant that basically if you were going to join the EU, you had to adopt um, metric units. So, so to, that, to that extent, there was there was definitely a pressure on the UK to convert to metric. Yeah, the UK was able to kind of negotiate some temporary exemptions to those rules, which meant it could still use certain imperial measures. That sort of initially was still nineteen eighty nine, but then it was extended and extended again. Uh, that exempted units such as miles, yards, and pints. The things we yeah. recognise still. So explain to me, we, we, we asked this question last week, and it's an interesting way to approach the kind of behind the scenes of the fact checks, but um, yeah. uh, posed with that situation with this context, how did you go about uh, checking the claim? The key thing in this is looking into the EU's laws and looking into what the UK has done. So claim in the fact check is, A, the imperial measures have been part of the British social fabric. That's certainly a pretty indisputable fact. Yeah. And more um, controversially, that their use should never have been outlawed at the behest of foreign bureaucrats. So that's obviously mean when they say the behest of foreign bureaucrats, they're looking, they're talking about EU officials. The EU, yeah, sure. So that meant that we had to go hunting into the e, into EU legislation. First thing to look at was what were the rules when the UK joined the European Economic Community, which is the precursor to the EU. Um, obviously, when you're talking about the EU, there's a lot of uh, jargon which uh, can be quite overwhelming and can be quite difficult to get your head into sure the eu has these various directives which which set the kind of rules which the countries have to follow one of the the, the ec's ascension rules which is the rules that you need to follow to join was that you had yeah. to adopt the international system of units so that involved us sort of poking around on the eu's website to try and find the right uh, exemptions uh sure and particularly that can be a bit of a bit troublesome when you're getting into more, into older things and older directives but we were able to work out and find out that the eu had this rule in place and also the uk had negotiated these exemptions sure the eu and the uk have been in a sort of constant battle all the way through the 80s and 90s um where the eu is trying to push for the uk to adopt uh metric measurements yeah people will know uh if they know if they uh, remember this debate at all will know will have heard of the metric martyrs Okay. Which was uh, a group which basically went when this law that was pushing for metric units in the UK in the in the two thousand that extended to loose goods, that's um, quite right. often means to people selling vegetables and meat and you know fruit which is sold by greengrocers, butchers, that sort of thing. And this was really controversial because some business owners refused to stop selling their vegetables in entirely in pounds and ounces. Right. And there was a couple of people that ended up being uh, charged over broadly to do with their refusal to do that. One thing that's really interesting and is another part of this uh, conversation is that metrication and the idea of going towards metric units is not something that was, is a, it was an EU-only position. The UK, like most countries in Europe and in the world, were moving towards metric measurements way before the EU came into existence. Right, 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 right. The first uh, law that 
we could find that was properly uh, introduced metric measurements into the UK and was stopping them from being illegal was in yeah. 1864, the Weights and Measures Act. Yeah. So there's a sort of long-term history of metrication in the UK as well. The UK Metrication Board, which was set up by members of government to kind of oversee the switch to metric units across British industries, that was set up in 1969. And much of British industry was already using some form of metric units, certainly before the EU directors came into force. Interestingly, I read uh, during the course of this uh, investigation, read a really interesting bit of information from the last director of the metric UK Metrication Board. And he was saying that part of the reason that people were so opposed to um, measuring things, for example, in pounds and ounces or in uh, meters squared rather than yards squared, so for example, it's a carpet shop or whatever, was consumers felt that they were getting less for their money even though they were getting the same. Right, right, right. Just, yeah. But I think what's uh, really important in this check and going back to the claim itself, which is that MPO measures were outlawed at the behest of foreign bureaucrats, what happened in the UK was that metric measurements were enforced, apart from in the exemptions which we stated beforehand. But imperial measures alongside them were not ever really outlawed. Right, right. So uh, during the during the the kind of ongoing debate in the UK, um, eventually abandoned plans to enforce metric only units in about two thousand and seven. So, right. for example, you will still see um, milk, like non returnable milk in shops. Still, it'll still say one pint stroke, however yes, many milliliters. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. So that's where the claim falls down because it was never they never yeah. actually ended up being enforced. I think it would have been the EU's ideal at that point yeah to have it to have it purely in metric but as long as sure. metric was uh, on the packaging or was visible and the imperial units weren't like massively bigger on the packet you could still sell things in imperial units now it's time for our interview with owen mcguire a fascinating chat about uh, the work of bell and cat how they go through an investigation, how they utilize all these different technologies and open source technologies to verify information which you might think would be unverifiable and would be really difficult to work out. They're a fairly small team, you know, with lots of volunteers and researchers and journalists involved. And it's really, really worth your time if you're interested in new models of journalism, new ways in which journalism can be done and how people are using technology and research and the things which are freely available to anyone online in order to do some really, really deep dive forensic investigation. That's right. And we'll catch you on the other side of the interview. My name's Owen McGuire, and I'm uh, an editor at Bell and Cat, the open source investigative uh, online organization. So I think a lot of people will know, uh, at least hopefully listen to this podcast, know about uh, open source intelligence, open source investigation, and sort of broadly how it's done but could you like talk us through how it works in practice in an investigation anyone who, who who's aware of bell and cat they might have seen this story well i mean i'm sure if they followed the news they would have seen this story but the the killing of shireen abu akli who's a al jazeera journalist um, in the west bank city of Jenin. Mm. so um yeah uh, she, she was shot and killed um there was uh, journalists who were with uh, shireen abu akli who said it was an israeli defense force uh, bullet that killed her it was the, the um, and the Israeli defense forces and military said no, it was um, Palestinian gunfire that killed her because there was a Israeli defense force raid in Jenin and uh, a bit of a kind of battle between the Israelis and Palestinians that were there. 
um, we looked at this and thought, okay, maybe we can look at the information that's online and try and get a bit of clarity to, as to what actually happened. Yeah. The, uh, I mean, the, the first kind of day or so on social media was just kind of wild accusations going here, there and everywhere. There was video of uh, a groups of Palestinians firing weapons, firing guns, engineering. There was videos of the IDF um, uh, in the area as well. Um, so we uh, looked at the um, yeah the position of I guess referring to the first answer we geolocated the position of the Palestinians who were firing weapons and we geolocated the position of the Israeli army and what we found was that um, the Palestinians were way further away from Shireen Abu Akli when she was killed and the Israeli defense forces were much closer there was also a, a video uh, taken just after Shireen Abu Akli was was shot dead um, we took that video presented it to an audio forensic expert and said, okay, you can hear a bullet being shot in this in this video. Can you give us a rough, rough estimation of, you know, the distance um, between, wow. you know, the, 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 where the, where the uh, video was taken on the phone and where the, the bullet came from? And what we found was that it was, or what the audio analysis expert said was it was between 174 and 188 metres um, from where the... Huh. Um, where the where the, uh, the the phone recorded the, the sound of the bullet being fired from, which was close to shooting Abu Akli. it transpires that when you take the information um, that we had sort of observed, the position of the Israeli troops and the Palestinian 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 militants, the first Israeli vehicle or the closest Israeli vehicle to Shireen Abu Akli was something like 190 meters away. So that's very close to the audio forensics and the Palestinians with guns, the Palestinian um, militants, I guess you could call them, they were something like 300 metres away, maybe even more than that, actually. So it seemed to be that, okay, it's most likely that this weapon or this, you know, the gun was fired by the IDF. Um, it's it, The IDF still, I guess, I mean, the, there's some kind of controversy around this. Um, the, there's been kind of anonymous IDF sort of comments in Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper, saying that, um, the yeah the the a soldier fired a weapon, but he was firing at a Palestinian what he thought was a Palestinian Palestinian militant in between the IDF vehicle and Shirin Abu Akli. But the initial kind of I guess claims yeah. of okay this was uh this was this was Palestinians was was you know I guess it's kind of accepted now even even by the Israelis, but they they still. I say it's accepted, but it's anonymous sourcing that's that's and in, in it's talking about this. Officially, they've they've still denied this. Um, another kind of example, I guess, um, in terms of what we do. Uh, I, I mean, I guess everyone knows what's going on in Ukraine. Bellingham has had a lot of focus on on Ukraine, um, but when the I guess all the information started coming out of Butcher um, of the um, the horrible stuff that went on there, civilians killed, bodies, you know. Western media went in there and there was bodies lying on the street after this was after the, the Russian forces vacated the area. Um, yeah, so those reports came out and then a Russia Russia immediately or almost immediately comes out and says, well, that's crisis actors. Russian forces were, you know, very nice to people there. We didn't kill anyone. It was either the Ukrainians or it's crisis actors. So we kind of just looked at the, the sort of claims that were made by the Russians. I mean, they're absurd anyway. Um uh, and and kind of you know there was uh, information they were putting out saying look you can see bodies moving on the ground 
that's clearly actors. You know, you look at the the video and the evidence, and that's you know quite easily disprovable. So, that type of thing to give a very long winded answer to your question is uh, is is what Bell and Cat tries to do. That to me makes me think that this is the sort of thing that simply wouldn't have been possible, even you know, ten fifteen years ago. Um, and it's only like the fact that so much open source information is available now that you can then start to challenge the sort of state narratives on things. I guess so. Like uh, journalists have already have always done this, I guess though, haven't they? And it's just I guess there's more like technology is given more options or opportunities to do this. And I think the fact that I mean the people at Bellingcat, like most of them aren't traditional journalists. They're just people who are very yeah. online and, you know, almost have like an obsessive attention to detail. Um and I think that um yeah, one of the things that I noticed when I talk to younger journalists is that they're much aware, much more aware of these kind of um, yeah platforms and how they can be used compared to you know traditional journalists um, who I might have worked with previously. Um, it's yeah. just there's there's more of an awareness of that now. So I think in the next ten fifteen years, you know, all this stuff will be quite normalized. Yeah, it it must be have kind of different degrees of difficulty when something is not as visual as this case, for example, where it's about kind of reconstructing locations and sounds. But yeah, there must be times where you're trying to kind of communicate that process of verifying, but it it may not come across as clearly to the wider public. I'm not the most technical person, so like my colleagues have to like really break this down to me. And I'm most like when I'm doing these things, I feel like I'm the stupid one asking them the questions. It's like, okay, if I don't understand it, like how people who read the articles are, you know, going right, to right. It. So, um, I, I guess an example of this would be you get a lot of this um, when you have say something happens in an in an, an area where there's it's not a built up area. You don't have like Google Street Map or Google Street View or something like that. It's just like. Yeah. Um, out in the middle of nowhere, so like Tigray, for example, like where there's, right. um, you know, the conflict between uh, the TPLF and, and the Ethiopian government, you have all these things happening out in the middle of nowhere, and it's like, okay, how the hell can you figure out where this is? Right. And there are there are ways of doing that, um, yeah. but mm-hmm. it just takes a lot more explanation, a lot more diagrams, I think, in those situations, um, and also as well, just be open with what you can and can't know. Um, that's right. also something right. that, yeah, um, I think that's full transparency on that as well. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me a little bit of the that situation of the um, BBC's uh, the anatomy of the killing. Oh, that was amazing. Yeah, which we'll link to in uh, the comments of this. Um, but that was a situation where there was there. It was in a really rural area. Um, did I think Bell and Cat worked with them yeah, on that? Bell, did they? Bell and Cat did work on yeah. Some Bell and Cat researchers worked on that. Yeah, but and also as well, like so that was two thousand eighteen or two thousand and twenty two. Now things have developed since then. So, um, a lot of what that. As far as I understand that, um, that investigation was a mix of open source, but also people telling the BBC journalists, okay, how about, here's a hint, look here. But there's been, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the tool PeakVisor. This is another thing that's just incredible to me. Um, but no. PeakVisor is like a, it's a um, this tool that's been developed that essentially recognizes mountain ranges and ridges. And so you can put any kind yeah. of, you, you have a picture of, I say there's a mountain range or a ridge in the background. Wow. You input the picture into that, and it kind of recognizes similar areas, and it gives you it narrows down like your search area. That wasn't around when there was the anatomy of the killing, and it was kind of going off, kind of okay, try here, try here, try here. Um, so maybe that investigation would have been a lot quicker, but that well, yeah. So that was I mean, that was that was that was pretty incredible. What the what the BBC and the Bellingcat researchers and other researchers, open source researchers who who did that um, managed managed to do so. For people who haven't heard of it, it was uh, um, Cameroonian soldiers who were accused of uh, 
killing women and children and then it was denied by their government and the BBC managed to locate there's a video basically that had been come out they were managed to geolocate it even though it was a rural area looking at the profile of mountain ranges in the background to try and work out where it was and then work out who was active in that region so it was um, put together in a long Twitter thread which I really like uh, laid out exactly how they'd done it and just how complicated <laughs> and how much effort it had taken to yeah. put together but it's a really incredible bit of work and again it's one of these things that only really comes about when people have the time and the kind of inclination to put yeah. a lot of effort into doing these things does Belling find itself receiving tip-offs and anonymous sources I mean you must get people who are giving you hints and clues about investigations and how do you combine that and ally that with your kind of open source approach so I mean, you can get a tip, and you you can you can you can have someone tell you, okay, it might be useful to look here, or this is what I know. But our the way we would do things was we'd be like, okay, thanks for that information. We still have to prove it in a fully transparent mm-hmm. and open way. So we'd have to prove it with data, or have to prove it through you know like an, a, a geolocation or something else, something that would allow um, the reader or another media organisation to verify that themselves or to follow up in their own steps and be able to do it. Um, in the same way, that's kind of the way. It's it's very, 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 very unlikely that we would um, say or, or would use like an anonymous sources confirmation for a story. It's just not the way that we would we would tend to do things. What about like using hacked documents and hacked information that's been that's been taken out of the private domain into the public domain? Yeah. So again, that's that's I guess the real ethical boundary there, isn't it? Because it's like okay, mm. there might be useful information in there, but to get that, you have to you know, use this hacked hacked information. So if we do that, so say, say for example, you know, within this hacked information, you can find out, this is, this is a real world example, within this hacked information, you might be able to find out there's a Russian poisoning squad rampaging across Europe, killing people with poison. Um, yeah. You know, do you, do you not do that then? Like, is that the ethical question kind of goes the other way then? You have the capability to do that, but then you don't do that. Um, so the, I guess kind of where we've fallen in that instance would be like, okay, we'll do it, but... In that instance, we won't be, you know, someone else could, you know, another media organization could do the same thing and they could, you know, verify it that way, but we won't be explicit with exactly how we how we do it. Do you tend to find that you are having to think about it not seeming as if you're just focusing on one side or, or not um, presenting, uh, like, you know, kind of through all the things you do, are you present, are you worried about presenting a certain narrative i know the bellingcat has been accused by uh, people of sort of presenting a pro-western viewpoint is that something that you have to work to avoid when when i hear people say these things and people online definitely do say them because i've seen them say it but it's like do you guys not look at our website i mean it's like we we get accused of being oh you present a western point of view or whatever you only focus on you know the bad stuff russia does and it's like well the first article i ever edited for bellingcat was about uh, potential U.S. airstrikes that hit, hos- hit hospitals in Syria. Yeah, um, you know we've last year like our, the most read story on our website by a country mile um, was about uh, the sort of lack security around um, uh, U.S. and uh, U.S. bases in in Europe that uh, hold nuclear weapons. Um, it's, we do stuff like this all the time. Like we just last month did a piece about um, French airstrikes in Mali. Um, backed up by US um, weapons and, and support. So, like, the people who say this stuff, it, it kind of frustrates me. I, I, maybe, 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 like, maybe it's to do with um, the fact that, you know, we do we do investigations into Russia. Um, 
that's mm. that's true with you know the incredible investigations that uh, Christo and the, you know, Elliot and the guys have done, but that seems to get the most attention, and maybe that's why people have that opinion on Bellingcat, or that's why they say that about Bellingcat. But if you actually look at our website and look at the stories that we've done, then I don't see how you can that that kind of claim adds up. So that was our chat with Owen from Bellingcat, and I loved when he was talking about, you know, recreating the map, recreating the scene, and getting the kind of, um, what was it, the the audio forensics person to come in and, like, determine distance yeah. and speed and all of that. Incredible stuff. Like, I could, I could hear that for a long time. Yeah. Okay, so that's pretty much all we've got time for for this week. Sam, is there anything particularly we should be letting the listeners know about? You can tell us what you like us to fact check next and we might do it on the podcast or we might write something about it. You can tell us that in checkmyfact.paperform.co checkmyfact.paperform.co I think that's it. Is there anything else? Well, the other thing I was going to mention is that we are not going to be back in two weeks. As usual, we're going to be back in three weeks and that is because in two weeks there will be a very interesting, as yet unrevealed <laughs> happening, a fair happening. Yeah. A fair that you'll happening, be able yeah. to, you'll be able to read and enjoy in various platforms. So yes. I won't reveal anything more about that, um, but stay tuned for an announcement in the coming weeks. Well, we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.